Hi, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported our show by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way that you can support us by checking out some of the deals that we're able to pass your way, but donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think that we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 each month can go a long way. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and clicking on the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show... The government's war on woke, the battle over schools, and the coronavirus depression. I think this is a country that has made huge progress in tackling racism. He doesn't think that institutional racism exists. It must have been a very different Home Secretary who, as a child, was frequently called a packy in the playground. We need to be courageous, Mr Speaker, in order to calm down racial tensions and not inflame them just so that we can have something to put on social media. Are the Tories turning against identity politics? Downing Street advisers are said to have urged the Prime Minister to declare a war on woke. A number of ethnic minority figures in the Conservative Party have started to challenge the consensus on racism. Home Secretary Priti Patel has hit back at Labour's claims that she doesn't understand racism. Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch has rejected the claims that systemic injustice is to blame for the disproportionate number of ethnic minorities affected by COVID-19. And in response to the Black Lives Matter protests, the Prime Minister has appointed his head of policy, Manira Mirza, to lead a commission on racial equality. Mirza has previously argued that institutional racism is a myth. Ella, what have your thoughts been on this week? Well, it's been very frustrating, first of all, because there's been a very ugly reaction to the appointment of Manira Mirza in this role as being head of this commission, inquiry, whatever it is the government's trying to cook up. Basically, to put it succinctly, like, calling her an, an Uncle Tom or a traitor because she is someone who's BAME but doesn't completely adhere to the current feeling around Black Lives Matter and silence is violence and institutional racism is everywhere. She takes a critical voice of that. And so she's basically been criticised both by commentators and by fellow politicians you know, as a traitor. And that's really wrong and should be criticised. But you do have to ask the question of, from my point of view, what is the government doing here? What does it think is going to get out of this? Because the minute I heard that there was going to be, you know, a month long inquiry commission into this, reports into this, you just thought, are we back here again? How many of these have we had? I mean, I never ever agree with David Lammy, but I did agree with him this week when he said, for Christ's sake, counting how many of these types of investigations into racism that we've had. I mean, Manira Mirza herself has criticised these kind of investigations. And so you think either do something material about this and have a row about what that thing might be, whether it be in relation to Windrush, whether it be in relation to you know issues that Catherine Burblesing is going to talk about on this podcast about young black boys in schools, 
but please not another inquiry because it's not going to shed light on anything useful. I mean, the issue of racism in the UK is incredibly complicated. It is not as simple as saying that we have institutional or systemic racism, that everyone in the Tory party is secretly a BAME hater and that the system is set up against specifically young black people. That's not true. But there are vestiges and hangovers of a racist system. There is still prejudice in this country, which is very different to racism and which is based on kind of material things and economics. But we should be having a conversation about it. Instead, it feels like the two sides are shouting at each other. Labour and Tory haters are convinced that the country is run by sort of white supremacists uh, who need to be brought down. And that's the message from Black Lives Matter. And on the other hand, you've got this kind of bureaucratic response from the government, basically avoidance tactics, I think, in setting up another kind of month-long investigation into things that they already know. So I don't think we're going to get anywhere out of this. In fact, I think the the issue around dealing with racism is going to worsen. Tom? Well, I'm slightly more positive about this, not in the sense of this particular commission and you know another report into all of this when there have been so many already. But I think it's been interesting and positive that the Tory party, for whatever reason, want to take up this issue of identity politics and to call it out as explicitly regressive and something that actually inflames tensions rather than doing anything to solve them. You know, you saw this from Kemi Badenoch as well as Priti Patel in the House of Commons recently, just making this point that the way in which the left in particular, unfortunately, deal with the issue of racial inequality not only distorts the problem, but actually kind of causes far more social tension than they're actually going to resolve. You know, just because the fact that kind of exaggerating racism, as is so common these days, does nothing to make people feel more at home, you know, in this society if they come from a different background, nor frankly does telling white people, many of whom are working class themselves, that they're privileged, that they need to atone for this supposedly great gift they've been given in life as a result of this. And all of this, this way of looking at the world, obscures those very real inequalities, you know, and even though there have been reports into a lot of these issues in the past, the problem is that the way in which the data is discussed, the way in which it's kind of selectively looked at, it feeds a lot of these kinds of arguments without actually having much to do with what's really going on on the ground. And I think it's also worth, I mean, Ella's already raised this, but one of the things that I think has been most striking this week is that it's tempting to kind of see identity politics as something which is kind of well-meaning but counterproductive. But I think what we've seen in the backlash to Manira Mirza's appointment, as well as the treatment of Pretty Patel over many months, is the fact that it actually legitimises a different but nevertheless pretty pernicious form of racism. You know, this idea that Mirza is a, a brown executioner, a racial gatekeeper, this idea that effectively she's some sort of race traitor, purely because she doesn't agree with anti-racist ideology as it is currently constituted, not because she's any form of of racist or or any enabler of racism. And I think the thing that makes that far more pernicious is because it's a form of racism that passes the dinner party test. Mm. It's something that you can say on Twitter and no one's going to bat an eyelid about it, or you know, certainly you're not going to face the sorts of consequences you might if it was a different form. It's something which is very rarely called out. And I think that's one thing which has been really, really striking about this past week is the level of vitriol. This has gone beyond kind of, you know, well-meaning people who are taking this a bit too far. I think what we've got an insight into is if you think of people in racial terms, if you think of people as so defined by their identity to such an extreme, you do effectively end up kind of rehabilitating a pretty racist form of discourse. And I think we've seen that in, in spades in the past week. And I think, you know, what's concerning is that it means that even, you know, critics of the government are not 
actually criticizing the government properly. You know, they're latching on to these kind of racialized criticisms of people like Priti Patel. You'd think there's plenty you'd want to criticize Priti Patel over, whether it's, you know, the fact that she's quite an authoritarian figure. You know, mm. you might not agree with her views on immigration or whatever it is, but instead it gets pushed through this lens of of race that, you know, she's a race traitor. She She's not having the opinions we expect her to have. You know, the same with Manira Mirza. I haven't seen a single person actually challenge any of her claims. For instance, that institutional racism is a myth, that there's a grievance culture around race. Instead, the response seems to be that she's just simply committed a kind of heresy against what we're expected to say about race. But why racialize it in such a disturbing way? Ella? Yeah, I hated that anecdote trading in the House of Commons between certain Labour MPs and Priti Patel, partly because why does it matter? Priti Patel made this big kind of declaration about having suffered racist abuse and, you know, it was kind of seen as her getting won over on her critics. But then, of course, you know, if you're anyway involved in actual real politics, you'd say, well, then why are you still hanging on to the hostile environment policy if you understand the injustice of treating people differently from their backgrounds. Why did you admire Theresa May when she went for the idea of targeting the West Indian community during the Windrush scandal? So, you know, it just feels like there's no politics in any of this. You know, if you imagine what it is that the critics of the government want, I really get the sense that all they want the government to do is to come out and say, we're pro Black Lives Matter, we'll take a knee, we'll remove the statues, And there's not really much else there. It's incredibly shallow. And as Tom says, it's part of the problem with identity politics is that it's not just this kind of well-meaning thing that's gone wrong. It completely perverts politics because everything is on the level of the symbolic. Everything is on the level of, you know, the personal and identity. You know, the removal of statues in Oxford with Cecil Rhodes or, you know, out in Parliament Square will do, you know, sweet FA for the life and the political desires of your average black working class family. It's just not going to change it in the same way that seeing more black politicians won't change it in the same way as seeing, you know, more black writers represented in the arts. All of this guff doesn't actually address where the real inequalities are in terms of race or indeed class in this country. So it's just such a bullshit conversation that it's very hard to get on board with any of it because it feels so shallow. Actually, what's interesting is that the statue smashers would agree with that, or they did agree with it for about five minutes last week, because there was an amazing kind of about turn. If you you go back a few weeks ago, when they threw the statue of Edward Colston in the sea, they were all very pleased with themselves. And it was very, you know, all very symbolic. And this was a historic moment. People are going to learn about how awful the country is. And then as soon as Boris Johnson and various other conservative figures started saying that we shouldn't airbrush our history, started speaking back against the toppling of statues, then they said, well, who cares about statues? We're talking about racism. You know, we're concerned about the real issues. Why are you banging on about statues? And now that Rhodes has fallen down this this week, suddenly the statues are important again and they've won a great victory for anti-racism. So Mm. when you deal with politics totally at the level of, of the symbolic, not only are you not advancing anything, but you increasingly just don't make any sense and are unable to say anything consistent. And I think just going back to Ella's point about tackling the inequalities as they really exist, I think in order to do that, we really need to clear away and challenge this idea of structural or systemic racism as it's articulated by these people. It's an idea which is, like at best, it's pretty incoherent. It seems to encompass almost everything from actual laws and structures in society to just attitudes or even statues, potentially. But also, I think it's a real block to 
understanding you know this kind of it's this kind of all-encompassing theory but at the same time it falls apart on collision with the facts a lot of the time you know this idea that race is the way in which to understand inequality in society is almost the only way it's kind of all pervasive it's in all of our institutions it just doesn't necessarily stack up you know if you look at things like the GCSE results for maths and English this is data from last year 42.7% of white British students got a strong pass in those subjects 44.3% of black African students got a pass in those subjects nor does it really account for the fact that there's large differences between what we're presented as as these quite homogenous racial groups you know black African students outperform black Caribbean students white Irish kids do a lot better than white British kids so if, if systemic racism as they're presenting it is so the kind of unifying theory if it's so all pervasive it's pretty nuanced and sophisticated in how it applies itself you know it's almost like picking winners mm. and losers so as to throw us off the scent and I think it's quite clear that a lot of these disparities which a lot of these reviews have looked into a, a lot of them have something to do with race but it's not all about race there's a lot of other factors that need to be discussed and I think one thing which is always missed in these kind of identitarian campaigns is the issue of class which is such a fundamental way in which to both understand inequalities in society but also politically work out a way to unite and to challenge them is something which is just completely ignored by this process do I expect the Tories to take that issue (laughs) by the scruff of the neck probably not but nevertheless I think the fact that there is this challenge now to this pretty woolly and in some cases actually pretty regressive thinking about race I think can only really be a good thing and I think it's very noteworthy that race is is an issue that people want to start commissions over and start inquiries over and that every company in the world wants to get involved in a discussion about race and, and Black Lives Matter. And precisely for the reasons you're suggesting, Tom, is that if you come up with some recommendations about race, inevitably you're making a few tweaks to policy here and there. You're adding a new diversity commission. You're adding a bit more monitoring and, and things like that. But if you're talking about class, at the end of the day, you're, you've got to be proposing nothing shorter than the transformation of society. So it's, it's quite obvious why people would rather steer clear of, of that particular problem. Right, just before we move on, I want to tell you a bit about ExpressVPN. We've all wanted to search for something or visit a website that we'd probably rather other people didn't know about. Most of you are likely thinking, well, why don't I just use incognito mode? There's a good reason. Incognito mode alone does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I use ExpressVPN when I'm online. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Virgin or BT or Verizon or whoever. In the US, ISPs can legally sell your data. And in the UK, they're obliged to hold it for security purposes. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realise ExpressVPN is running. It's on seamlessly in the background and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash spiked, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked, expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. Now, 
back to the Spike Podcast. Schools have become a major battleground over the major issues of the past few months. Schooling has been hugely disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. An estimated one in five children have done less than an hour per day of home learning. But the government's plans to start to rectify this by bringing back all primary school students before the summer holidays have been shelved. Meanwhile, even though schools are hardly functioning, there are calls to upend the curriculum coming from the Black Lives Matter movement. Many argue that schools are failing to teach the horrors of Britain's past or to reflect the diversity of the present. Catherine Burblesing is joining us down the line for this section. Catherine is the head of the Michaela Community School in North London and the editor of a new book, Michaela, The Power of Culture. Catherine, first of all, what do you make of the government's bumbling over schools and what does that mean for millions of children? Yes, well, uh, we've currently got our year 10s and 12s in, uh, except really from their point of view, they're only in one or two days a week. And we've been doing Zoom lessons with our year 12s and we've been doing video lessons with our year 10s. And because we're quite a strict school, we've had them working really well. We've done phone calls to every single family once a week throughout lockdown and they have been completing the work. And yet it's really interesting. We find that they they don't remember a lot of it. Mm. And that's because... I really think that this has has put to bed the idea once and for all that technology could ever replace a school or a teacher. They are absolutely vital. Schools and teachers are vital for children to learn, in particular children from disadvantaged backgrounds like ours. Our children, despite the fact that they've been working and we've been using Google Classroom and they've been sending in work and all sorts, and yet back in the classroom there, they can't remember it. My teachers are pulling their hair out. I mean, it really is. It's a great concern. And um, in fact, I just signed a letter today, an open letter that a whole bunch of heads have signed to government to say that from September, we really need all our children back in school. Now, obviously, we need to do this in a safe way. We hope that over the next few weeks, this can be demonstrated that schools are safe places. And I really hope, fingers crossed, we're all back in school in September. Is there a danger here of widening inequality? You've suggested that this is worse for the most disadvantaged pupils. Yes, absolutely. The thing is, is that in a school that has a challenging intake, you will find you have some families who don't want to send their children into school normally. So they want them home to look after the grandparents or to look after their younger siblings or all sorts. And a school like ours has to work really hard to make sure that those children come into school. When there is a pandemic like this, it gives those families, even though they might otherwise have sent them in, this this is now a reason to keep their children at home. The school can't argue with that because, you know, if the family say, no, 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 we don't feel they're safe. Well, what, what can we do? And so I do worry about attendance figures as we move forward. It does undermine the culture of a school, especially those good schools that have worked really hard at encouraging the children to come into school, despite what their parents might say, for instance. And and then they, they fall behind because they don't necessarily have the culture at home of support for their work. And those private school kids, oh, I don't know, if mom is at home all day and is able to support them with their work at home, then it's a very different thing. And so, yes, for disadvantaged children, this really is... Uh, it's not a good thing. Tom, do you want to come in? As Fraser was saying in his introduction, the other way in which schools have been a big battleground recently has been as part of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of it. There's been a lot of focus on the question of the curriculum and this idea that children need to be taught more about black history, empire, 
colonialism that's kind of buried in the curriculum at best at the moment, not taught, not discussed. I was just wondering what you make of that and whether or not you think that would be a positive development to um, talk more about these subjects and the way that campaigners are asking for teachers to do. Yeah, well, the campaigners are presuming that these things aren't already taught. I've never met a history teacher who doesn't teach colonialism and slavery. It, it's a very odd you know, accusation. Now, how much they teach it, how well they teach it, and it's not it, teach anything. Mm. What I'd always say is ask people what they know about the tutors. Because if they think they're spending all their time learning about the tutors at school, well, then ask people what they think about them because they won't be able to tell you anything about that either. And I would argue that one of the reasons why people don't know that much about anything <laughs> is because too many classrooms, there is poor behavior. The teaching methods aren't really the right kind of teaching methods to ensure children are able to commit this stuff to memory. So it simply isn't the case that this stuff isn't being taught. We certainly teach slavery. We teach the Amritsar massacre as part of India. We we teach about Gandhi. We teach about the Irish famine. We teach about all sorts of British atrocities over a long period of history, including slavery. What's interesting is that I think slavery is often taught as the Atlantic slave trade, as opposed to what slavery was globally, that there was an Arab slave trade, that in fact, the word slave comes from Slavs who were white slaves, Roman slavery. Is this taught in context? I don't know. Of course, the Atlantic slave trade was in terms of numbers, uh, the, the worst, and uh, slavery is abhorrent, and we rightfully think that way now. But we also need to talk about modern slavery. I, I do worry that there is this tendency to want to concentrate on the Atlantic slave trade because it was Europeans enslaving Africans, which, and it was terrible. I, I need to stress it's something that Britain needs to know how, how awful it was. Having said that, history is complex. You know, the way that Britain did lead the way in some ways. I mean, there are people who might argue with this in abolishing slavery. There are discussions to be had. And those are the discussions that we have at school and that happen across the country. It's just that too often, I think our teaching methods are flawed across the country. And so children don't remember these things. And so it's easy for campaigners to pick that up and say, aha, we don't know anything about these things. Mm. I'm not so sure it's true that these things aren't being taught. Do you think that in a way, without wanting to kind of, you know, presume the intentions of these campaigners, it's not really that much about history at all, necessarily, that it's a lot of it's about kind of furthering this campaign about how we understand the present as being the kind of continuation of these atrocities? Do you think there's an element of this, which isn't really just about what should be on the curriculum, what should be taught and understood, but you know, how we should kind of understand our present and, you know, the position of BME people in this society? I mean, I, I agree with the campaigners on that. We should understand how the present is a product of the past and we should understand our past. And it is true that perhaps uh, many ordinary white Britons don't think that much about race. And I think it's good to have that conversation. It's right that we should talk as a society about racism because well, why wouldn't we want to talk about it? It's a, it's a reality. And so we want to talk about bettering society. However, what we don't want to do is encourage our children to be victims. And that is something that I think the Black Lives Matter movement does. And it undermines much of the work I feel that we do at school in trying to empower our children to take personal responsibility and take life by the horns and go with it. And that, yes, there are obstacles and yes, there is racism and all sorts of obstacles you will come across. But the way to succeed is to jump over those obstacles, not to sit and say, oh, life is hard. And let me put my hand out to the white man and say, Mr. White Man, you've got to give me something. I, I, I want them to take control of their lives. And victimhood doesn't help anybody. On the other hand, we do need to be having a conversation. So 
I, I worry that while it's a movement that I agree with, I, I do believe Black Lives Matter. You know, I believe that there's a reason why Black Lives Matter came about because Black lives didn't always matter. And so I believe in it in theory, but it has turned into something relatively ugly, I think, in many ways, because it will undermine the, the children who I teach who they want to help. And that's because the way in which we teach all of these, you know, black history, I say black history like that, the way in which we teach it is that we don't teach black history. We teach it as part of history. Once upon a time, History was whitewashed by historians, by our schools. And so we never spoke about the million Indian soldiers who fought in World War II, or we never talked about the Caribbean, the hundreds of thousands of Caribbean soldiers and so on. So whitewashing was bad. And black people had to campaign to get a monument up to, to recognize the contribution of the Commonwealth. And that was bad. However, if we concentrate too much on the various negative aspects of our history in that way and always pin people up against each other so it's the whites against the blacks <laughs> that will inevitably in a, end up in, in some kind of race war and in the last you know couple of weeks I've been very very worried in watching this happen on tv and the, the riots and the violence and so on we shouldn't judge people by the color of their skin and and I have to say that in 2020 because identity politics makes us do exactly that. And we say children cannot identify, black children can't identify with Shakespeare because he was white. Or black children can't learn about the Tudors because, you know, that's white history. But black history is, is, is about slavery. And actually, no, it's all British history. And one of the things that we do in school is we sing God Save the Queen. We sing I Vow to Thee My Country. We have a British flag flying outside and we teach all of this under the umbrella of British history because we are all British, whatever color we are. Mm. And that is something that Black Lives Matter undermines and it saddens me greatly. Ella? Well, I really wanted to just push you on that because the issue of race relations, the thing that I'm worried about is that for especially ordinary kids, the message of something like Black Lives Matter, of that sort of inherent difference that you can't understand one another because of your skin colour and that someone who's white is so embedded in privilege that they can't, it's impossible almost for them to reach a point of genuine solidarity with their black peers. I mean, what does that do for kids at school? Because one of the things that I've worked in inner city schools, London schools before, and it's very evident there that actually for most young kids who come from the same area that things like that don't come into question they don't see difference between one another it's like you know did you grow up on my block or not and there are different allegiances so do you think that the the sort of hyper focus on race that black lives matter has for example destroys that sort of authentic solidarity especially amongst children yes no exactly it does end up well, creating two camps and, and it's all about race. I mean, weirdly, it used to be the far right that said that brown and black people couldn't be British, that they couldn't integrate into Britain, that they couldn't hold the same kinds of values. And now, weirdly, it's the other side who are meant to be progressive. And they're saying that there's such fundamental differences between us that it's impossible for us to understand each other, that white people no longer are able to make judgments or moral judgments and, and that they must just accept whatever it is that black people are saying. And that on the one hand, I do think that there is an element of truth in that, in that white people could listen to black people more. But then on the other hand, that doesn't mean that a white person isn't able to then make their own conclusions and make their own judgments at the end. 
Look, race is fascinating. And I spent my whole life thinking about it, reading about it. And, and, and it is fascinating. And so we should talk about it. And we should talk about racism. There are real issues of racism. CVs that get sent out. You've got a black name. You're less likely to get shortlisted than a white name. You know, people will hire in their own image. Stop and search issues. The, the issue of police brutality in America. Look, I get it. You know, there is racism. We should talk about it. However, we do not want to undermine what we've managed to achieve in this country. In the 70s and 80s, if you watch the film Blinded by the Light, any, anybody my age watches that film and remembers what it was like growing up in the 80s, the National Front, and the, the real fear that people felt being called various racial slurs, uh, you know, at school, it was so normal. Nowadays at school, someone being racist, it's the worst possible crime. <laughs> the children would never tolerate it. Now, of course, I am in London, which is a little bit different from outside of London. I, I recognize that as well. So I don't want to say that there's very little racism because there's different amounts in different parts of the country. But I do feel, sadly, that Black Lives Matter has now got to the point where it will exacerbate racism in this country. One way in which has done that Oxford University has announced that any black students now who have found George Floyd's death too disturbing can apply for a special dispensation when it comes to their workload, their exams. I mean, what is this? I mean, it is to look at black students and think, you're not capable. It's okay. We'll look after you. And that kind of paternalism and insult, it's just patronizing. I mean, how, how dare they really think of black students in that way? And I hope and pray that no black student takes them up on that because the only way to have a good life is to grab life and to take it no matter what it throws at you and to keep on going. And that's what I always say at assembly. Every assembly I give, I say to them, come on, you pick yourself up and you keep on going. And that doesn't mean the obstacles aren't going to come. Of course they are. And that's what makes you stronger, <laughs> you know? And that, you have to learn how to cope with that. You can't have everybody just put cotton wool around you and get on their knees, which is exactly what's happening. So I just hope the country finds some sense soon <laughs> and that we find our way back on the right track. <laughs> You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The UK is in the grip of its deepest recession in over 300 years. In April alone, economic output fell by an astonishing 20%. Unemployment currently stands at 2.8 million and will no doubt rise sharply once the government's furlough scheme comes to an end. And there's no prizes for guessing why we are where we are. The lockdown in response to COVID-19 has meant that vast swathes of normal economic activity has effectively been shut down. Tom, do you want to talk a bit about this? Yeah, I think it's absolutely staggering. Um, and the figures of the past two weeks in particular in relation to GDP, but also jobs, hopefully will serve as a bit of a wake up call. And just to put these things in a bit of perspective, as you say, you know, in April, the um, fall of 20% of economic output, that's the largest monthly contraction on record. And it's three times greater than the decline seen during the whole of the 08 and 09 economic crash. Mm. 
And as you say, you've got millions of people who are either already or soon to be out of work. The figures are slightly confusing at the moment because the furlough scheme is kind of obscuring a lot of the damage. But we do know, as you say, that it's nudging up to about 3 million on the basis of work-related and out-of-work benefits. And given the fact that there's 9 million people on the furlough scheme, if even a sizable chunk of that of people there lose their jobs as many of them no doubt will you know we're heading towards levels of unemployment rates that we haven't seen since you know the first half of the 1980s this is really really serious and what have we been talking about for the past couple of weeks statues people kneeling and this week a footballer who good on him campaigned to make sure that the poorest kids will be able to continue to get free school meals throughout the summer and it just is so striking that the kind of impact of this has not really dawned on people. There's been a lot of discussion about how so many people, because they're on the furlough scheme, are kind of insulated from the economic pain of this. But I think the people who are most insulated from the meaning of all this are commentators and a lot of people in politics who still haven't quite got to grips with the scale of the economic impact of lockdown. And I think part of the reason for that is, if we're being honest about this, is however they want to dress it up, however much kind of feigned outrage there has been at these figures over the past couple of weeks, this is something that many of them actively campaigned for. And I think that's at least part of the reason why we don't seem to be Mm. discussing it as a front page story as much as we would be. Ella? It's also the case that you've realised, I mean, the pandemic and more importantly, as Tom says, the response to the pandemic and the preemptive and now it seems rather rash push to lock us down for so long. It's not just about we're suddenly in a crisis out of nowhere. The reasons why we're going to suffer so badly are long-standing. So if you look at what Marcus Rashford, the footballer, was talking about in terms of free school meals, Brendan O'Neill mentioned this in his column this week, the idea that fighting for the government to make sure that they give families who need free school meals for their kids 15 quid a week is seen as this great victory. Uh, You just think, hang on a minute, what's going on? Why is this pitiful, you know, the the most baseline of support, the ability to feed children being seen as this great victory? And, you know, Marcus Rashford talked about the fact that, he's only 22, but he talked about the fact that he had free school meals when he was a kid I'm older than him. I had them. This has been going on for decades. And it's kind of like all these chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, that's just one example. But you look at the fact of how many people are on the furlough scheme. That's one figure. But There's a huge amount of people in this country who have for a very long time been in precarious job situations, zero hours contracts, working part time, working on the fly, lots of them who have been utterly screwed by this process because they haven't had any formal backup in terms of being able to apply for those schemes. And it's revealed how for many, many families in this country, life is living paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, you don't have to start sounding like a kind of poor me, pity me, sort of pro-welfare state lovey to realise that actually there are deep inequalities in this country that have to be addressed. And what I'd like to see is a positive outlook and a kind of, again, without sounding cliche, can-do attitude from, you know, a left maybe in this country that says, how can we turn this on its head and make a kind of economic renewal that could be more focused around lifting people out of the kind of misery of daily life that for lots of them are the reality. I mean, the one thing I'm waiting with bated breath to see is we've had so much discussion over the last eight, nine, 10 weeks, clapping for carers and, you know, this narrative that's come out of every broadsheet newspaper of how we have to readdress who are our key workers and, you know, really give gratitude to the people scanning our toilet paper in Asda. 
Well, let's see if that plays out in terms of wage rises or any kind of move to better people's quality of life. Because I get the sense there's a lot of talk going on at the moment and not much desire for action when it's really very needed. And uh, wages don't tend to do that well in recessions. So, uh, you know, I'm not hopeful about that at all. I agree completely, Ella. And I think, you know, obviously we have to talk a lot about the existing economic problems. You know, this didn't come out of nowhere. But at the end of the day, the biggest barrier, of course, to getting back on our feet is the lockdown. And then even as the lockdown is easing, we have this disastrous social distancing policy, you know, where we all have to stand two metres apart. I think you should scrap it entirely. But, you know, there's considerations of reducing two metres to one metre. And that in a space like a pub or a restaurant or a theatre would be completely transformative. This rule is, there's no basis in science anyway. I mean, it's different in in practically every country. It's one metre in China, Denmark, France and Hong Kong, one and a half metres in Australia, Belgium and Germany, and two metres here and in Spain. I think that's got to be one of the first things we we get rid of before we could even think about, you know, what what does the next economy look like? We need to get back to the old normal first, I think. Ella? The two metre rule thing is just nonsense. I mean, everyone that you hear interviewed about it, whether they own a pub or they're a teacher in a school, is united in the idea that there's no way that life can go on based on a two metre rule. I mean, even when you meet up with people and try and do social distancing, walk, going for a walk, you don't adhere to the two metre rule all the time. So that's just a kind of a nonsense thing that the government has kept up that isn't backed up by the science, as we know, because all different countries have different scales of how many metres you can be apart. But the point is, this has never been looked at in the right way, which is it should be a system of managing risks. And what has never been fully appreciated is the very, not risk, but the reality now. It was a risk before and could have been managed, but now it's the reality of deep economic hardship, which will hit many people in this country far harder and potentially with you know lethal consequences, worse than the threat of coronavirus. Because the thing that no one has other than actually spiked, people haven't pointed to, is that most people are not frightened of dying from a virus. They might be frightened to giving it to other people. But most people are frightened about the fact that at best they've had a 20% pay cut on 80% of pay for the last 10 weeks, and that's probably screwed up their finances very severely. Or they've been out of work. <laughs> you know, hmm. That whole discussion about managing risks hasn't happened. And the health consequences, as you say, Ella, have just not been factored in at all. You know, we know that people's nutrition will get worse. We know that people have, you know, worse mental health and diseases of despair, you know, are really associated with unemployment. But as we've said a million times on this podcast, you either pro lockdown or you want people to die. And that's, that was kind of the only discussion. Mm. Tom. I just think all of this points to the remarkable failure of leadership throughout this whole process and the cowardice, frankly. I mean, it felt like when lockdown came in, it was pretty clear that the government had been kind of harried into it, had been kind of rushed into it by, you know, some images out of Italy and elsewhere, as well as a press which was just demanding that they lock down as hard and quickly as possible. Um, And now we're seeing an incredible timidity in getting us out of this. You know, the reason that the government is dragging its feet so long on the question of the two-metre rule is because it seems pretty clear that SAGE, the scientific um, advisors, don't want to back this change. (laughs) So rather than just taking responsibility, saying this is important in order to get the economy back going, allow pubs and theatres and 
everywhere else to start to actually recover. They've been so tentative about it because they're refusing to show any leadership. You saw this with the schools issue as well. And even though that's been clear for some time that the risk of letting schools reopen has been pretty low, but just the failure to actually take that issue by the scruff of the neck and make sure that kids were back in school before summer, they've just completely failed on. And the upshot of all of this is that by various estimations, we could be on track for some of the worst deaths in relation to coronavirus and the worst economic impact. Mm. And I think a large part of the reason we've got ourselves into this mess is because the government has been incredibly cowardly, frankly, in the way that they've gone about this. They've been frightened by misleading models and they've been kind of harried by a pretty shrill press. And I think we're seeing the upshot of all of that at the minute. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.